Time for breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely, and we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Welcome today to Trauma for Breakfast. I am your host, Stacey Gagnon, and I have Jonna Watson on today, and she is a mom, a school psychologist of 13 plus years, I believe, but more importantly, she's a play expert. So I'm excited to play today and really unpack that. And I really think that the importance of play is often overlooked. We look at it as something that we give as a reward um, to children instead of it being actually how they learn. And so um, please just tell us a little bit about yourself before we kind of dig into some questions. Sure. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm excited to connect with you. And yes, I am a mom of four. My oldest is in fifth grade. I have twins in second grade and my youngest just started kindergarten this year. So I'm kind of in a a new stage where my house is empty during the day um, for about seven hours. And so, yes, I do work as a school psychologist part-time. I've been doing that for 13 years. And throughout that time, you know, I started having kids. And so a lot of my experiences sort of started to come to life in terms of seeing just how much play is integral to development. And that it's really interesting how little direction kids need to learn all of these wonderful skills before they reach school age, they're just playing and they're having a good time while they do it. Well, they're also learning all of these major things like walking and talking and, you know, these are major skills and they're doing it through play. So I started to watch that sort of come to life in front of me and then seeing how it sometimes does not always translate to that when I, when I go into schools and just how, how much play seems to be important. So that, that started to become really important to me also along the way. I started to realize just how much my own dysregulation can impact my own kids. And as I became, especially a mom of twins, that really was where I realized I need some help here. And I I realized how my body was reacting in ways that I was um, maybe not acknowledging all my feelings and my trauma. I, I had a lot that was stored up that I had not processed myself and it started to come up. So all of these things, um, my family sort of became my classroom. I was learning about myself and realizing how far I had to come to process a lot of my own trauma and grief that I've had throughout the years. So through that, I've just been working on myself, developed kind of a a practice of my own that's called the five minute inner child. And so I started to play a little bit more. I started to tune into my own body and to figure out what do I need for just five minutes a day that could honor myself apart from like goals and outcomes and things that we get so good at like checking these boxes and being adults. And we have to do that. But that was sort of 
a turning point in my life a couple of years ago when I started to incorporate that practice. I love what you were just saying, how through our kids and also through watching kids, a lot of times we can start exposing some of the things that we've been dealing with. And I I think that is so incredibly true. And I'm just going to pitch this real quick. Jonna has a podcast called the five minute inner child that you're going to want to check out where she really gives you some tips and tools on how to access that every day and really look at that because part of healing comes from that self-care comes from that mindfulness of recognizing what we need in order to process things instead of numbing or just shoving stuff down. Let me ask you specifically this, you know, I work a lot in the school systems and I was, I was a teacher for, um, in a public school system for seven years. And I remember at the time seeing this real push to actually have play exit and worksheets and work, um, curriculum driven things enter. I felt a lot of pushback as, as a parent going, I don't think this is, this isn't correct. This isn't what we know about kids. And I taught third grade. And at the time I, I really implemented a lot of, of play. I mean, we were, we use Legos, we use Lincoln logs, we use Play-Doh. We use, I mean, we were playing all the time. And then also everything I did within my classroom, I tried to do games and things like that and music and chants and stuff because I wanted it to be what how kids learn. And I got a lot of serious pushback, not just from parents who felt like, well, I want my kid to be assigned more homework. I want it to be more instructional with, with academics. But I also got pushback from my administrators. What was really interesting, though, year after year, it proved out that my class ended up with the highest scores on all the academic testing. And really it was because kids who are playing are learning to critically think. And also they're living in a space of their brain where they're learning brains online. Because when you have trauma, your brain actually will not, when it's in a survival space, you're not in a learning brain space. But if you are playing, it's impossible for a brain to be in survival mode. I I didn't realize that at the time. I think I kind of tipped into that. So I'd love to hear what you're seeing because we know now kindergarten is now the new first grade, right? And we are pushing, pushing, pushing our kids to what I think is their detriment. So I'd love to hear from the school psychologist side of you and the mom side of you of, of what you're seeing happen with our schools. That's a great question. I love talking about this. My kids are all in public school. I work in public schools. And I think that the thing is, is that teachers and yourself probably understands this as a, as a former teacher, that teachers are just as kind of in this trap as anyone else, because even though you see the, the fruits of it, you see that the kids do learn, they, they do the very deep learning that happens because we're multi-sensory creatures. So just doing worksheets, you know, that gets to maybe one or two senses, maybe, but if that's not, if you're not deeply embedding it, it's going to be difficult to retain the information and then recall it. You've got the the short-term memory, long-term retrieval parts of the brain. And so you need to be able to deeply learn it. And we do that through our five senses. And so if the five senses aren't engaged, it's going to be a little bit, you're going to need a lot more repetition than you would if it was more of a play-based. There's some kind of statistic out there that that tells how many, the difference between repetitions you need when you're at play versus 
just repetition alone. And I don't know, it's something like hundreds of repetitions versus like 10 when you play, you embed it so much more deeply because your senses are involved. And so if you're just trying to do the rote memorization, you're going to have to do it over and over and over again, because it's just not how you learn versus like an example, like riding your bike. You just don't really forget it because your whole body is involved. There's lots of senses at work. And so there is definitely all kinds of brain functions involved when you're doing it. It has to do with your your memory and then also your retrieval. So you're going to not only learn it better and more deeply, but you're going to actually recall it better too. So it's just, it works on so many levels. It's just that we're beholden to so many standardized testing things now that I think teachers are on the hook for, and it has to do, it gets involved with all kinds of other things with evaluations for them and, and teacher raises. And so I, you know, I I think it gets really complicated, but when you just try to just understand student learning, it's actually not that hard. It's pretty simple. I absolutely agree that it's top down. When when we look at the, how we're driving teachers, I don't think teachers are teaching the way they want to teach, but I also think there's a component also of behavior problems too. It is easier to manage a class where you have too many kids and a lot of them that have adversity and trauma backgrounds and behaviors when you are having them in their seats on, we say butts in the seat, right? That, that is, that is easier to manage than if I'm, I'm playing because we're kind of, when you play, it is going to add some chaos. And so I, I, it's interesting. I would love if you have a tip for teachers on how they can maybe start small, how they can start small to implement play in a classroom where it's not a, okay, holy cow, I just opened the floodgates and I can't rein it back in because that's a fear. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that you got pushed back from parents, especially. I think there is this sense that we want to want to kind of try to control things. And if, thing, if kids are lined up, if they're in rows, then then something's going to happen and, and yes. learning is going to happen and test reading is going to happen and we're all going to make progress. And the thing is, is that life is kind of messy and real learning takes place in the messiness of life. And that applies to, I mean, I think a lot of things you could take that, but I think that if teachers were just going to start small, going through your five senses of like, how does this curric- how does this reading instruction, you know, not just for listening, but how can we also incorporate some of the other five senses? Like even just having them use their imaginations as they sit there to think, what would this, if we were in this, you know, forest, what would it smell like if we were there or taking it outside? If we can't, you know, just doing different things that activate the five senses, because that is how we take take in information. We take in information that way. So the more that you can incorporate that, the more deeply embedded the learning is going to be. And so it's not going to look as, as neat as, you know, sitting in the rows and yes, behavior and anxiety, especially for kids, I think even coming out of COVID much more so is a problem, you know, and, and I think parents are experiencing it too. Parents had a lot on their plates trying to homeschool on the fly. I did. It was a lot. And so I think it always makes us feel better if we can try to have control, but it doesn't always, it just doesn't pan out and and you're not going to have the outcomes. I think you might have some compliance sometimes if if you have some kids that are compliant, but it it, it won't necessarily translate to some of the things that we're really looking for, like creativity and curiosity and real learning or a love for learning that hopefully we take on to adulthood. So that would be my, my two cents with that. One of our boys had one of the best teachers I've seen. He actually, um, 
he, he went on to just, I think, be a pioneer in the field of play for kids and teaching in the classroom. He, again, had in our district, and I believe now in the district he is in, really, really great scores with kids. And, and again, this is not, I don't want you to think test scores are the, the goal that we have, but I do think that that's how teachers are measured. So that's why I say the test score thing. But he was really big about, he had created a game that was called H-Ball that he played with his students, right? And it was like that, okay, when, we're, when we get this done, we're going to do the heavy work, then we're going to do the fun play and I'm with you playing. And I, I think what I loved about what he did was he played with his students. It wasn't a, okay, now you go play. He was actually playing alongside of them. And I, I recognize the power of that because when you are laughing with your students or laughing with your children at home, or you are playing with them, there's so much connection happening on, on a level that makes them feel safe and makes them feel that there's some control. And I, I think that, that is, there's, there's a lot behind that in then being able to manage kids in the harder times, because they already have equated you or see you as someone that's safe and in control and that they play with. And I think as adults, we tend to give children the work of play without the modeling of play or the modeling of laughter or the modeling of silliness, because we think that's child's play when I think that we have to see it as adult play. So how as a parent, would you say I could maybe incorporate that into my home as far as something to do like, Hey, take the time that it's not my kid's job to play, but it's actually me. Like I can actually model play. And so that's what, that's what my, my inner, my kids call it my inner play. <laughs> they hold me accountable now because they say, mommy, have you done your inner play? You know, it, it's been simple practices like having a dance party or, you know, just going on a walk and me and my daughter will walk in sync. And that was something for me, like as a child, that just delighted me when I could walk and our steps were in sync. And now to her, that delights her too. So she just laughs. We giggle together. Um, just little things that, you know, as a kid, you didn't think so much about like all of these outcomes, which I totally agree. The test scores are important. In fact, in Finland, I think is one of the highest test scores in the world, and they have the most recess and play incorporated into their day. So there's definitely a correlation. It's not to say those things aren't meaningful. They are. It's just a different way of approaching it. So I think that as a parent, figuring out what it is that makes you come alive and what lights you up and the things that are ways that we can get back to our own child, the little me inside, because that doesn't go away. We start to get on autopilot and we do all the the things. And we sometimes just, I think, start to lose track of ourselves. Um, at least I did. <laughs> I don't know if everybody else maybe does a better job than I did. But for me, one of the practices that I've gotten back to this year in particular was I used to write children's stories at it as a kid. That was something that was big for me. And um, even as a student, like I got invited to some young authors conferences at my school, like out of the whole school, I would, I got chosen. So I started getting back to that. I wrote some stories, particularly about the things that I've learned. And so it's been really interesting as I've been doing that. My kids will watch me like write these children's books. My son just took off with it. He's written like 15 books in like the last three months, just about, you know, the world of food and like, you know, 
I think one of them was about a penny that learns its value is more than just being well, that's <laughs> the point, which oh, I yeah. thought was just more brilliant. What a great story to write. So we are going to get one of his books published. And then one of my books is called Ruby, the rubber band learns her limits, a case of being too stretchy. And so it's all about how Ruby learns kind of boundaries of like people pleasing and, and doing too much to get stretched out. She learns to she ends up going to the school of no and gets sewn back together by Miss True to Your Heart. So she learns how to stay true to her heart. It's been so interesting to give my kids some of that language and to realize they're just like picking up on these, these concepts so quickly. In fact, like, so this is a story I, over Christmas, we went to paint pottery and we have a little pottery shop in our town and we had some family in town. So we brought everybody to bring to paint pottery and I was going to paint the coffee mug because it was, you know, practical and, you know, I was going to use it. And I kept going back to this little penguin that was so adorable. And I kept saying, you guys, this penguin, it's so cute. Somebody should paint it. And finally my daughter, Emma, she goes, mom, you should just be true to your heart and paint the penguin, not the coffee mug. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought it was so cute. That true to your heart type of um, language. It was just so simple and so silly, like to paint a penguin rather than a coffee mug, even though what am I going to do with the penguin? Well, I'm going to have fun along the way. And the point is to enjoy the journey rather than having it to be always about the outcome. So that was just like a little example that happened over Christmas. But I think that we can model it. We do model it through us doing that work each day and hopefully allowing that to translate because the highest form of teaching is the model and practice of doing it yourself. So the more that we can, I think, do that, it's hard because we've gotten used to giving so much um, when we're already on empty, I think. I, I love what you said about the, the language, right? Your kids and m- modeling back the language that you use in the book. And, and I see that as well. I, so I have seven children and my children come from some pretty high adversity. And my two youngest kids were born in, and raised in an orphanage early on. And so they actually never played. So when we brought them home, it was very foreign to them to actually play. And so we actually had to teach them at a very, a, a much older age to play and we still have to do it at times. What has been interesting is to see them, like both of them have very high levels of anxiety. I believe a lot of that is the lack of relationship and we naturally play with babies. Play is how we relate and we learn self-esteem and we learn all of this inner language of someone's delighting in me. So my two youngest, there are these, I call them feedback loops where my kids are, can feel anxiety or feel when I'm stressed out or feel when I'm at the bottom of my, my cup. And so a similar thing that happened with me where your daughter saying true to your heart, be true to your heart. My, I was having a very stressful day and my youngest said, do you need a 10 second fill up? And She um, then basically gets in my lap and she holds my face and looks in my eyes and counts to 10 and then hugs me till I'm all the way full up. And I thought, holy cow, we don't think about how these things are taught and should be taught, even when I've had to do it in a way that's not natural because my kids didn't receive it early on. So it has to be plugged in later, which is not the natural order of things. But I realized, wow, I wish I would have recognize this more as a new mom with my oldest, who's now 21. Like I was so busy. I didn't recognize some of the things that I maybe should have poured in more. Like, I don't know. I I guess that's, that's always that, you know, better, do better. But I wish I kind of had understood that more at the time of how I understand it now as a much older parent. 
I mean, I think that, you know, we've got to give ourselves so much compassion. This wasn't something that, you know, our kids being a mirror and that co-regulation, this was not language that was around even when I was actually in grad school. So this has been stuff that even after I've come out, I've, that's been through professional development and going to conferences and learning these things myself. So it's really, it's a concept that I think, you know, been around and we can definitely feel it when we walk in a room and the energy shifts of somebody who's in a bad room, a, you know, a bad mood. And we're like, wow. Okay. Um, but just as similarly, the energy that we bring and, and just the way that we're showing up with connection first is so crucial. So, you know, I talked about the five senses, but connection is is part of that, too. So having just the the neuroception of safety has been written a lot about. And that's something that's actually not part of the five senses, but it's something that we can sense. It's called the neuroception of safety. And it's it's call it a sixth sense, but it's, it's something where we feel safe. We feel safe. We feel like we're in an environment that is um, nurturing and safe. And so without that, it, it does make it difficult to get into that, to that playful state, because you're right. Our nervous system, it's not going to even allow that to happen. I, I love that you said that because I think when we, and this is a lot of what we teach when we are working with kids, there's and in actually adults as a whole, there's, there's two base needs that we know the brain needs. And one is, is a feeling of safety, but the other is some type of control. And with kids, we call it shared control. Cause I'm not just giving control over, but I think that is so important in that because when they don't have that, they just live in that basement brain. They live in that bottom brain and they're not able to be free to be able to start processing some of the stuff that's happened or to even learn or to enjoy life or to have relationships or to have empathy for people and all these things that we want them to have. And a lot of times I think as adults, we have our own need for safety and control. And so we actually strip our kids of that. And I love to ask this question of teachers or even of parents. Is your child allowed to say no to you? Is your student ever allowed to say no? And if your answer is, heck no, they can never say no to me. Like that should be something you should unpack in your brain. Because if I never have the ability to say no to a request or a directive, then that means I have zero control. And that's a base need of a brain. And so I think that that's something when we're looking at kids and we're looking at adults that we're working with is that we have to make sure that we're giving them the ability to say no to things and have some control over their space so that they can access parts of the brain where they can play and learn and have self-esteem and relationship and all those things. Totally. In the story, Ruby goes to the school of no. She goes to the school of no to learn how to say no to her friends and to the people that she's having trouble with peer pressure. And absolutely, it is it is something that we kind of start to strip kids of after around age like two or three when they say no a lot. We think, oh, we've got to get this under control because otherwise what's going to happen? And I think that what we have to, especially when we, when we do say no to our kids, we have a very, we, we like to have an open dialogue and to, because I, I would like them to still have their voice and not lose their voice. I think like I did, I think that that requires a lot more energy to put into having conversations of why things are happening or why we're saying no. And especially when we do say no, it is for a safety reason. Like we actually have a very good reason. We'll talk to you about it, but there's a reason for that. But I think stripping kids of no, it's to their detriment. 
So a lot of times what we talk about in, in working with um, kids with a high level of trauma, no is a trigger anyway, right? Because you're taking control. And so we we either reframe it in a yes, like a conditional yes. So say my kid was like, I want, can I have ice cream right now for before? And it's like dinners in five minutes. I'll say, yes, we can have ice cream right after we eat what's on our plate. Or, you know, can I, like, we also do that with how we correct kids as well, because I've, I noticed this with my kids, especially with homework or something, if I pointed out how they didn't get an answer right, which, okay, it's math and the answer is wrong, no matter where you're at. <laughs> if I said, hey, you got this wrong, I'd have a complete meltdown because it just triggers something in their brain of, of our, already that shame place, right? And so what I end up doing is saying, wow, you did this part of the problem. Great, let's fix this. And then we'll be done with this one. Like you, you frame it in a way so that no isn't the stripped of no. And I love that. I love that concept of the rubber band. So is there a place that our listeners can find your book? Yeah, it's actually on barnesandnoble.com and also on amazon.com. So it is out. And yeah, the idea is actually, so she gets sewn back together at the school of no by Miss True to Your Heart. And, but when she goes back to these situations where her friends are maybe asking her to do things and they're just silly situations, like wearing shoes that are uncomfortable and she was going to do it to fit in rather than wear the shoes that are actually feel good with her body, but her stitches are special stitches and they start to twitch when she's in a situation that is sort of bringing that up in her where she's wanting to maybe push be stretched, be too stretchy. The idea is that she's, she should be flexible, but not too stretchy that she breaks. I think that listening to our bodies too, is just so crucial. So that's why the stitches start, they start twitching. Sometimes they twitch wildly and they just, but that's our bodies too. And we learn to get so disconnected from our bodies when kids are so embodied. I mean, if you think about a kid, they're just, they're everywhere. And, and yes, we, we have to teach them how to go about in this world and but they are so much more in tune with when they are feeling too stretchy as, as it says in the book. Um, and my kids now use that language too, but they, they know when they need, they need it. They, they, they just know they start to have a tummy ache when they don't want to go to school. And you know, that that's been something that we've been dealing with the past couple of weeks is, is not wanting to go to school and really getting at why is that and like talking through and creating some, some tools for her to use. But I think that that disembodiment as adults, we're really too, we're, we're, we try to think that our brains are disconnected from our bodies when they're not. And, and so paying attention to what kind of situations come up and how we feel in our bodies as adults, parenting or showing up as teachers or educators, we can feel it. We carry the stress. I go to my, if I go to a massage, they know when I'm not like letting that stress go through my body. So learning to take deep breaths and, and to take those moments where I need to step away and kind of come back is just so crucial because our bodies do notify us of when we are becoming too stretchy. And I love that. I love the, the mindfulness of her stitches causing her to be, Oh, I need to be aware of this. I have one last question for you. And and then I'm going to go online and order your book for my kids. So <laughs> what I would love to, to hear from you is what we are seeing. We're kind of an atypical home. My teenagers don't have phones, um, but I am seeing technology take the place of relationships and play and all of those things. And what are your recommendations for, for families and, and technology and how that interrupts? Because they'll be like, well, my kids are gaming. And so I would love for you to just give your school psychologist 
point of view on technology and how we navigate this world as, you know, this is a generation that is growing up with the world in your pocket, right? And so I would love to to hear um, from you on just your take on that. Well, I think the Surgeon General just came out with a age guideline that social media is not for kids under 14 at this point. That just came out a couple of weeks ago. I think that that's, you know, that's just one aspect of social, social media is one thing. And then there's gaming, um, which has all kinds of components. Um, I'll just say for my kids, we do try to limit that interaction. Um, they are growing up in this world. And so they, they have a Nintendo switch. And so they do play with their friends sometimes, but I think, um, teaching them the mindfulness of how did they feel in their bodies when they're using these devices, because, and for my son, who's my oldest, he's going to be 12, um, this year, he has started to notice he, we, we use the language of autopilot. Do you ever get on autopilot? And he'll say, Oh, that like that one day I ran out to the bus without like there was a there was a day when he ran out to the bus and um he was supposed to be a car rider that day. We were gonna take him and he like got on the bus because it came by our house. And we were like, where did Jet go? <laughs> and we oh. had to like make sure we called the school to make sure he got there because like we didn't know where he was at and he was at the school. But we talked about that and we're like, that's autopilot where you just see the bus and you, because you get on every day, you just did it, even though we had this doctor's appointment. Like anyway, so we talk about that and we talk about it in terms of technology because I think it's one thing. I, I think that rules are definitely necessary because we don't want them to get in over their heads with material and just these young minds that are um so we have neuroplasticity. So it means we're learning all the time, but we're learning things that maybe are not necessarily what we want to be learning too. So we can always interrupt those loops, but I think that having them as far as a maturity level, teaching them, how do you feel in your body? Like what go, like, do you kind of just do it to disconnect? Like, what is the reason? And kind of talking through some of that, I try to keep that as a conversation, which, you know, for obviously there's a developmental level, each kid is, you know, you got to take it down to their level, but like starting that conversation, because as adults, we scroll on our phones and we'll lose 30 minutes of our day, just not realizing that we've been tuning out. And so I think starting that conversation with kids is just crucial to help them have the maturity so that when they get to a place where they're going to have access to things, understanding how it's affecting their brain and body is important. Yeah. And I, I even going back to what you said earlier about uh, the five senses and, and how many senses is technology engaging, right. You know, and, and looking at that and thinking of ways that you can incorporate different things. And so technology is just, it's tough you know, when we look at statistically with depression and anxiety in our kids, I think, you know, it really follows when we started handing over smartphones and, and, you know, looking at um, the disconnect in a lot of ways, it, it, what is it taking the place of? So that's what my husband and I talk a lot about with our kids is okay. We, you can have some time on technology, but you're right. We're, we're the, the mean parents, right. But it's because what is it taking away? It's taking away your friendships. It's taking away you being outside and having, you know, experiencing nature and, and being with your family. And so, um, yeah, I, I actually, I always tell them that they're like little plants that need oxygen and sunlight. <laughs> they, they, I, I tell them that all the time. In fact, I found a little, a little meme and I emailed it to my son because he has email on his 
school iPad and I emailed it to him and said, children are like little plants. They need water, sunshine and oxygen. Because I, I say that all the time. And he laughed because um, he always rolls his eyes and says, we're not plants. And I'm like, yes, you are. You need to go outside. You need to play. You need some you know, you need all that more important than plants, right? (laughs) Yes. You're more important than plants, but that, yes, I, I always heard them outside. I wish it was easier. I wish I didn't have to force them to play. Like I, some of my fondest memories are playing in the woods behind my house growing up and technology just wasn't what it is now. And you know, it's funny because what we end up doing is we'll detox on our kids with, um, with technology and we will push them to boredom. And I think people need to recognize that kids need to be bored at times. Boredom is actually being, it makes you sit in a space in your brain where you're actually having to start listening to your body and you're not going to achieve boredom when there's technology available. And so we will do like a detox of two weeks. We will actually put things in place of it because if you're just like, okay, no technology and don't give them other things to do. <laughs> it, it turns <laughs> ugly very fast. It's like watching an, you know, an addict come off of something, but we are very intentional about that. And it's been really amazing to see because then they just start all of a sudden toys they haven't played with. They start playing with their sibling. They start going outside. They start building forts. They start doing all these creative things. And it's because we've made them bored. I, um, I want to end with, with this quote. I love it. And then I want, um, Jonna just to tell us again, where we can find her books and where we can find her. This is Mr. Rogers. And he says, play is often talked about as if it were a relief from serious learning, but for children, play is serious learning. Play is really the work of childhood. And it's so true. Play is the work of childhood. And so let's get our kids out there playing. And also let's get ourselves out there playing. So Jonna, where can, where can we find you? You can find me. I'm active on Instagram, Jonna underscore Watson, and you can find my books on barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com. And it's Ruby, the rubber band is the one about the stretchy rubber band. Yes. Ruby, the rubber band learns her limits. That's a case of being too stretchy. I'm working on some other adventures with Ruby where she's going to have maybe a choose your own adventure. I'm working on that right now because sometimes it's hard to make decisions, but that she's going to learn that sometimes there's, there's multiple ways to learn the same thing. Um, And I have another book too. It's about teaching superiority with kids and it's about Lake Superior um, being a a great lake. So that's also out there too. Um, And I have a website, johnawatson.com and the podcast five minute inner child. Awesome. Well, we are so grateful that you came on today and thank you all for joining us um, for trauma for breakfast. I hope you will go check out Jana and um, follow my lead in purchasing Ruby, the rubber band. Cause I love the concept of that. I'm teaching my kids about no and how to that twinge inside that they might feel when it's okay. Yep. It's okay to say no. So thank you all. And so join us next time um, for trauma for breakfast and you can find us wherever you find your podcasts. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.